or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke chapter 13, verse 4 and 5. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I was actually hoping to preach a sermon about the way the Lord uses the liturgy or something kind of tied in with this special Sunday of explaining the liturgy. But as I was uh, reading through the lessons and praying and asking the Lord like, what to preach on, uh, I, I believe he's given me a different word, not about the liturgy. So this sermon has nothing to do uh, with that. What it has to do with is something which I think seemingly almost every thoughtful person in every era of humanity at some point has given thought to, which is generally the question, why do bad things happen? Sometimes in its more pointed variation, why did these bad things happen to these people? The question is made, I think, especially sharp for Christians as well as Jews who know God to be a creator and sovereign over the universe, which means randomness is ruled out as an answer, right? The pagan might say, well, it's just random happenings. But no, those of us who know that God is the God, the, the creator of heaven and earth, we can't say it's just random. It makes the question sharper. Why do these bad things happen? And, it, and the question, I think, comes really to the forefront when um, the catastrophe that strikes is very specific, right? We talk about sort of the proverbial bolt of lightning. I've had it happen a handful of times in my ministry where out of the blue, some stranger comes to the church and they are literally sort of apprehensive about like, you know, You know, I haven't been to church in 20 years, and they're actually worried about some sort of divine act of vengeance. And it's a great joy to get to tell them that God is merciful and desires them to come back to himself. But we we have in this idea, right, that God would sort of strike down with a lightning bolt um, in some particular act of judgment. Um, I admit, you know, when you see something like the tornado that happened here a few weeks ago, it's like, wow, like this freak thing, unforeseen, out of nowhere. I mean... There are members of the church who live very close and didn't lose a branch from a tree and it just tore through. Like, what's going on? Like, we sort of, when we see these calamities that happen, they prompt this question, why? What's this about? And it's actually a very similar situation which is presented in our gospel this morning, right? Um, News spreads of something that had just happened where Pilate has killed some Galileans, presumably from what we know of history, from some sort of uh, unwanted rioting or revolt or something. He killed them, and then to sort of desecrate their memory in their grave, took their blood and poured it on a pagan altar, which is really gross. And the the way you could maximally injure the the heart of the Jewish people, right, to add sacrilege and blasphemy on top of, you know, this violent put-down. So... News spreads about that, and Jesus, who knows what's in a man, he, he sort of says what they're all thinking. He's like, doubtless some of you are wondering, if those guys got punished that specifically and that badly, did they themselves do something really wicked? Were those really wicked Galileans? Because their punishment seems to be so bad, that maybe they did something really wrong. Um, it's interesting to note that that's actually the opposite of how we phrase the question, right? We always say, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, I think the Jews with a sort of healthier skepticism, like, what good people, um, ask the question the other way around. If something bad has happened, they say, well, that person must have been really bad. 
So Jesus speaks into that speculation, and he actually brings forth another anecdote that must have happened in their recent news cycle um, about a tower that had just fallen down, kind of a freak tower collapse in Jerusalem and killed 18 people. And he says, well, about that one too, I bet you were wondering, you know, was that some divine sort of thumb of God acting for, for, because of those specific sins of those people? And Jesus says definitively in both cases that whether the catastrophe is caused by man, right, Pilate, or by nature, right, when a tower collapses, that's just mortar and gravity working against each other. By man or nature, it is definitively not because those people who were, suffered the catastrophe were somehow worse sinners than everybody else. Right? He's, he's ruling that out of court. He's like, no, that is not the answer for why these bad things happen. There isn't some secret sin that makes them worse. Um, which actually goes not in the direction of, oh, we're all equally innocent. Jesus is saying we're all equally guilty, right? That's an important distinction to make. Um, this is actually something Jesus teaches elsewhere, right? There's famously when Jesus encounters the man born blind, and they're asked, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he's born blind? And Jesus says, neither, right? Stop trying to equate specific suffering with a specific sin. He's trying to say, no, you stop reading it that way. So Jesus is affirming in his teaching here the same thing. We can never, and so the, for us, we can never presume on the same judgment. If the Lord says, no, that's not it, we have to say that's not it, right? Specific sufferings never happen because of specific faults. That's sort of the first lesson from today's gospel. Um, but when we look at the whole witness of Scripture, it doesn't mean, we still have to say that sin and catastrophe are still connected, Right? Not in some sort of tit-for-tat particular, well, this guy was really bad, so this bad thing happened. Not like that. But they are still related in more general terms. All catastrophe, I think, actually, can be traced back at some level to sin. In the case of the ones that Pilate murdered, you can trace it to Pilate's sin. Right? To be over-violent in his exercise of government, was, you know, and to, to have sort of this bloodthirsty desire to blaspheme their graves, um, that was Pilate's sin. And in the case of natural disasters, like a tower falling or a tornado, this is part of the fact that all of nature bears the stain and the scar of sin, right? This is the fall of Adam. And Adam introduced sin into the world. Nature got broken. No one died from collapsing towers or tornadoes in Eden, right? This is part of what living in what the theologians call a fallen world. Things are broken. They shouldn't actually be this way. When God originally designed the world, they weren't this way. There was no death or accidental death or suffering in, in Eden. The sin of Adam is what has caused nature to be broken like this. Um, additionally, we see in the Old Testament um, the sins of a nation can gather together to such a head that they're so foul in the nostrils of God that he does take decisive action, right? We see that with Sodom and Gomorrah, famously. Um, we see that with Israel itself when it plunges into idolatry. We see it with the nations around Israel that God uses Israel to be the agent of justice against. Um, and I, I do think there is some parallel. You know, tomorrow is March 25th which is the Feast of the Annunciation, the day we remember when Jesus was conceived in the belly of Mary, nine months later being born at Christmas, right? So as I'm thinking about that, how can you not say that Jesus was not fully a person on March 25th, right? And when I think about sort of the odious nature of 
our sins as a nation. Near the top is the Holocaust of abortion. Right? 60 million dead because of this. That's a sin which is rank in the nostrils of God. And I think what we see in the history of the Bible is when nations, you know, not everybody's sinning, but the whole nation will suffer because of the sins of some. Sometimes that is also a cause of catastrophe. So we can never point to sort of one person's particular sins and a particular punishment. God says, don't make that judgment. It's not the case. We are all equally guilty. It's also the case in the bigger picture of Scripture that sin is actually the ground for catastrophes. Um, the third thing, and the final thing, I think, this, that Jesus is where he, he concludes in on, by repeating it twice in our gospel lesson today, is that all sin, and this is actually different than point, the second point, all sin will result in catastrophe. All sin will result in catastrophe. That's what Jesus, he says it in verse 3 and verse 5. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Likewise, like those who the tower fell on, like those who Pilate slay, we will all likewise perish. He says all to make it inclusive and likewise as a, as a sense of divine judgment. The consequences of our sins is catastrophe. And that's one way or another, right? Um, I think Jesus is ultimately pointing to the second death. That he's saying the catastrophe of being sent to the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unless we repent, our sins, what will happen to us is worse than a tower falling on you. Right? An eternity apart from God is worse than Pilate messing with your blood. Right? That's what Jesus is ultimately saying. That unless we repent, that is the catastrophe that is the end of the train for sin. It's also the case, um, and this is what we see in 1 Corinthians 10, that God does meet out particular catastrophes. What that list, we get this list in 1 Corinthians 10, right? It's, Paul is recounting events in the book of Numbers of the Jews in the wilderness. And he says there was a day, there was a season where they all plunged into sexual immorality and worshipping these false gods. And so because of that, God sent a plague and it killed 23,000. Talks about the same with the serpents. And this isn't just an Old Testament reality. Old Testament reality. It's a New Testament reality. The next chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, those of you who eat without discernment in the Eucharist, without you know, trying to hide known sins or failing to recognize, discern the body, as is the language of 1 Corinthians, he says some are sick and even some have died because of taking communion in an unworthy and rebellious manner. Now, this isn't just some old covenant thing. This is in the new covenant, Paul speaks to this. And of course, we have kind of the most famous incident of Ananias and Sapphira, like a particular thing which then the Lord did reveal that he had a judgment for. So what I want to say is those cases are rare, right? It's very rare when the Lord executes some severe judgment and then reveals it through a prophet or and someone who says, you know, like Moses, the reason you had the plague was because of your sexual immorality with these other religions as part of the worship of these other religions. So sometimes God has revealed that. It still does happen. Um, but ultimately, it's about the catastrophe of, of hell is the final destination of sin. Unless, right? That wonderful, merciful word, unless. Again, Jesus says it twice. Unless we repent. Repentance, the great theme of Lent, 
is the one thing that averts the natural course of sin, the natural catastrophe that would await. What curtails that and changes the fate? Repentance. Repentance. We must repent if we don't want to perish, uh, as he says, like the, one, the cases that Jesus was talking about. Now, what I want to say is, that doesn't mean if we repent, nothing bad will ever happen to us, because we still live in a world where nature has fallen, where there's other sinners who are, could hurt us. So it doesn't mean we are immune from bad things. It just means that if we are repentant, we have nothing to fear from the hand of God. Right? We don't need to tremble like Ananias and Sapphira should have trembled. We don't need to be... Um, we've heeded the warning of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. The hand of God has nothing to fear for us. Most of all, right, we have confidence in the next life. That As Christians, when we come before Almighty God, who Moses was terrified to encounter, right, we can actually be confident, Lord, I am repentant of my sins. I plead the mercy of your Son over my life. There, there's a confidence there to say, I'm expectant that you will welcome me into paradise and not shun me away into hell. That is the joy of a Christian, the confidence that can come from repentance. That's, uh, I think, just a, it's a church word always worth explaining. You know, repentant for sins that we're aware of, continuing to remain repentant now, in the present, for sins of the past. Right? Never sort of getting on our high horse of thinking we're perfect or presuming to just sort of dabble in those sins again. But no matter how grave the sins of our past, and each of us, we each have very serious sins in our past, right? Against one commandment or another. But remaining repented about them, continuing that spirit of, Lord, I'm sorry for these. We know that the catastrophe will be diverted. Ultimately, right? Hell will be diverted and that we will be embraced by God. We are embraced by God. So I, I just invite you to allow you know, these very Lenten words to, to ring in your ears that today as we approach communion uh, and the f- a fresh appeal of the Lord's mercy over our life and throughout this season of Lent, repent. Unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. And to say too, our repentance itself is always flawed. My repentance, none of us repents sufficiently, right? Our repentance is always in fits and starts and it's patchy and not con- consistent with what it should be. But of that we repent, right? That's the discipline of every Lent. Lord, my repentance has not been as sincere as it should be. Please make it more sincere. Right? That's what we're doing every Lent. So to not be alarmed if we think, well, I know I have big sins. Have I repented enough? The answer is no, none of us have. There's no such thing as some sort of line of, well, now I've repented enough and everything's... No. The whole attitude is repentance means turning towards God. We can always turn more fully with more of ourselves to God. That is the continual shape of repentance. Amen.